Good morning, friends. Thank you for being here today. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. If you do not know, I'm Byron Bradshaw. I'm the pastor here at Calvary Bible Church. And as you may know, we are taking a break from the Gospel of John for a handful of weeks. And we're going to do something in the next six weeks or so, something that I've never seen any church ever do. We are setting aside time to understand how the fabric of Scripture is woven together. Now, my original plan was to cover the Old Testament one week, uh, the 400 years of silence, or whatever that is called, the time period between Malachi and Matthew, and then spend a week in the New Testament. But um, I, I was advised to take my time a little bit more than just spending one week in the Old Testament, because that would just totally be a flyby. It's going to be a flyby this morning, but that would really be uh, difficult for people to catch. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to spend three weeks kind of unpacking the Old Testament, then take a break to discuss vision, and then we will spend the next three weeks after that describing the 400 years of silence and the New Testament. And why are we doing this? We're doing it because of our mission at Calvary Bible Church. Our mission is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ. And so what we want to do is just help people understand how the scripture actually fits all together. So that is what we will do for the next six weeks or so. Now, since there's no way I can read the entire Old Testament in one week, without putting you all all to sleep for the next ten nights, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I picked a passage that encompasses the message and theme of the entire scripture. If you could pick one passage that encapsulates the entire message of the Bible, what would you choose? I chose Romans 5. That's where we will be. Romans chapter 5, it introduces the issue of sin and also the redemption of God. Romans 5, verse 12. And I'm using a different type of translation, so it might sound a little different. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there's a big difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to all, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Now verse 16. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many wrongs. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who received it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation to everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. I thank you that we can just take a moment in time, once a month, just to remember the elements. Something that reminds us of the sin that we introduce into the world and the sin that consumes our hearts and our minds so often. And Lord, communion also reminds us of redemption, of restoration, of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God to pay for the sins of the world. Lord, that your body was broken and your blood shed so that I could have redemption and restoration and I could have a relationship with you. But not just here on earth, but one that lasts for eternity. Lord, um... I know many of us today have a lot going on in our personal lives. We have a lot of things going on outside of these walls. Lord, I just pray uh, that your spirit would work through your word to give us a good overall understanding of your promise that we find in your scripture. Lord, thank you for your son. And Lord, I pray today would be glorifying to you. And I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is uh, part one of the Old Testament. Today we're kind of starting to put together, so to speak, the picture of the entire Old 
Testament section of the Bible. And kind of my plan for today, I'm just going to be honest, uh, today's going to be probably a little overwhelming. It's going to be drinking from a fire hose and be like seminary all over again for some of you who have gone. But kind of today my plan is to start really broad and really basic and with foundational information and then slowly work our way down to the specifics of the scripture. But allow me to illustrate something that we do in churches. I, I've known many people that like to put together puzzles. Anybody like to put together puzzles in this room? Okay. Now, here is one that I bought at Walmart yesterday, and if you would like it after the service, I would be glad to donate it to you, because um, I do not have the patience to put together a puzzle. I want to scream when I put these together, and um, I am a self-professed bull in a china shop, and bulls don't put puzzles together very well. So, but if you're putting together a puzzle, what comes in handy? To understand the picture in which you're trying to create. Now let me ask you a question. Can you put together a puzzle with only, without understanding the cover picture? Just with these little things right here. The answer is yes. I mean, you can put together a puzzle that has 2,000 pieces without understanding the picture on which you're going for. But what's the problem? It's going to take you forever, right? It is very handy to have an understanding of what you're trying to put together. Same with the Bible. That we, in evangelical circles, we love to look at individual puzzle pieces, individual passages of Scripture, and you, on your own, can grind it out, so to speak. You, on your own, can study the Bible enough and put all the pieces together into God's redemptive picture for all of mankind. You can do that, but it's helpful every once in a while for a preacher to actually just kind of show you the box cover and just kind of say, okay, this is what we're aiming at today. That's my intention. Now, to be honest, I've never heard anybody, any church ever in the history of mankind. I'm sure somebody's done it. There's no new ideas in churches, really. There's not. But, but moving on. Well, there might be, but moving. So, but really, what I want to do is instead of uh, making you grind it out, so to speak, I just kind of want to take six weeks for you to understand the picture of God's redemptive plan for mankind. So I'm putting, to, uh, putting down the individual puzzle pieces of different passages, and I just want to show you the box cover of where we are going. We are spending three weeks in the Old Testament. We will spend one week in something called the 400 years of silence, and we will spend two weeks in the New Testament painting the picture of the totality of God's redemptive plan. My purpose for this is... Our mission, our mission as Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ. And what I hope happens by the end of the six weeks is that you can pick up your Bible and kind of understand where things fit within the framework of the picture itself. I'll just stand it up that way. Just to show you a nice illustration for what I'm doing. Um, I'll just leave it here for the next six weeks. But, uh, so, what I'm hoping is after the next six weeks, you can understand how the book of Nehemiah fits in with the book of Kings, with, fits in with the, this guy named David, and fits in with this guy named Moses. And then how all of the Old Testament events then points to the Messiah that, we, that is unfolded in the New Testament. So my plan for today, specifically, is to start by walking very slowly from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool. So right now, what I want to do is get your toes wet. We're going to test the temperature of the swimming pool. Okay, we've all done that once or twice. So let us start with the most basic idea. Now, I, uh, I was inspired by a, another preacher who used this illustration of Vince Lombardi. If you know that guy, if, who is that? He was a coach of the Green Bay Green. Green Bay Packers in the 50s, 60s, and maybe even into the 70s. And when he became coach of the Green Bay Packers, he started with the most basic elements of football. He said to these professional football players that, men, this is a football. Friends, this is a Bible. Okay? This is the Word of God. This, the name Bible itself comes from the Greek word biblos, which means book. But this is not just a book. This is the book of all books. That in this one book, we find God's plan to redeem us from sin. But what is the whole Bible about? If you could put it into a word, the Bible is about sin. If you could put it into a phrase, the Bible is about God's pursuit 
of mankind's redemption. And in a sentence, the Bible is about God's planned pursuit to redeem mankind from the consequence of their sin. If you could choose a passage of scripture that encompasses, that encapsulates, that summarizes the entire message of the Bible itself, the book, what would you choose? I've already read it to you this morning. If you remember Romans chapter 5, and I'll reread the text itself. This is in Romans chapter 5. It, it encompasses the introduction of sin through Adam and the Savior and the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ alone. I'll read it. Verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Now Adam is a symbol and representation of the Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the son of excuse me, for the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who received it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. How do we know that to be true? It's because everyone dies. That is the one for sure way that we know that every person that has ever walked this earth, except for one, has sinned. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because of one person's disobedience to God, many became sinners, but because of another person's obedience to God, many will be made righteous. So what is... This is not just a book, this is the book. And what is the message, what is the central theme of the scripture itself? It is God's pursuit of us. I'm going to insert something real quick and going to pick on our culture real quick, especially church culture in America. We oftentimes are mistaken to think that the Bible is about me. It's not. The Bible, the, the main character, the star of the show, is God himself. That we have a very man-centric idea of the Bible and of the gospel. But friends, listen to me. We are the damsel in distress. We are not the heroes. God is the hero. So this is the Bible. And its central idea is God's pursuit of mankind due to mankind's sin. Now, if you were to open this book of the scripture called the Bible, the book, you would notice probably in the very beginning a table of contents. So we're going to go slowly, work our way more and more towards the deep end of the scripture itself. And you would see in the table of contents of the Bible, you would see two parts. You would see the Old Testament and you would see the New Testament. The word testament there literally means covenant or dispensation. So you have the old covenant, the old dispensation separated by something we have the 40 years of science. And then you have the New Testament or the new dispensation. We in American culture, in evangelical circles, we favor the New Testament, but the Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament. Because without the Old Testament, the New Testament cannot be understood. The New Testament is like the icing on the cake or the cherry on a Sunday. Think about a cake itself, the idea that the cake is the foundation of the icing. But we all like the icing part. We don't really like the cake. Same with the Bible. We like the icing. We love the New Testament. Without the Old Testament, it would, it would, we wouldn't have any understanding, any idea of how the New Testament even works. We would be so confused. So the Old Testament is the foundation of the New. It lays the groundwork for the coming of the Christ Jesus, the sacrifice for our sin. The Old Testament answers the question, why? It answers the question, why do we even need Jesus? The Old Testament proves our inability to be good and to be righteous. Despite all of God's attempts, so to speak, to all of God's times, he proves to mankind that they cannot be good enough, that God gives us the law, still we could not keep it. That despite making mankind in his image and in original perfection, despite choosing a nation through a man named Abraham, despite giving us the Old Testament law, despite giving Israel's wish of having a king to rule over them, 
despite the incessant warnings of the prophets in the Old Testament, the Old Testament proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are sinful and that there is no way for us to earn favor with God. So then God interjected in his son, Jesus Christ. But let's go a little bit deeper into the deep end of the scripture. This is a little bit of TMI, um, but the Old Testament itself does not call itself the Old Testament. This is a Hebrew Bible. If you've ever seen one, you can look at it after the, after the service today. This is a Hebrew Bible. You read it right to left, and weirdly enough, this is the beginning of the book. So you have to flip the pages this way, which is backward from what we know. But the Hebrew Bible does not call itself the Old Testament. It calls itself the Law, the Prophets, and the Things Written. If you know the overall structure of the Old Testament, that is the exact overview or outline of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the things written. You have the law first, the first five books. You have the things written, the the middle 17 books of the Old Testament. And then you have the prophets, which are the last 17 books of the Old Testament. But let's go a little bit more specific. We understand the broad overview of how the Old Testament is arranged. But we still are a little bit confused. Because we in America... We love time. We are slaves to our clock. Whenever you tell a story, think about whenever you tell a story in the office or whenever you tell a story to your children or to your spouse, what do you always tell it as? You tell it as a chronological event. This happened before this and this happened before this. But the Bible is not established that way. Matter of fact, the earliest book written is not the very first book of the Bible. It's probably the first book written is the book of Job. So if you were to actually look at the Old Testament, you would see Genesis to Esther is the story of the Bible. The beginning of creation of mankind, the introduction of sin, and then you have all the way to the book of Esther, which comes some 1,500 years after Abraham. So within the first half of the Bible, you have a span of 1,500 years of stories, and that is the foundation of really the rest of the Bible itself. Then after the book of Esther, you have Job through the Song of Songs, which is the section of poetry. We would say the things written. And then you have, from Isaiah to the end of the Old Testament, you have the prophets which pronounce judgment upon God's people for their mistakes. So that is kind of the overall What I find amazing about the Bible is that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and it does not contain one contradiction. Now, I've seen some of these apparent contradictions that our culture puts forth, but if people actually just read the context of the passage and or understand the culture in which that story was told, then they would clearly see that any contradiction that they pose to us is foolhardy, is, is dumb. D-U-M-B, dumb, okay? There are no contradictions in the scripture whatsoever. I've been spending my entire life learning this. But let me, let me just put this in perspective for you. Imagine this. Imagine a book was started in 500 A.D., and was just completed this year. And it told the story of uh, stories of over a span of 1,500 years. Do you think that there would be one different contradiction in a man-made story over a span of 1,500 years? You betcha. But within the scripture itself, we have one story written by 40 different authors, written over a period of 1,500 years, and it doesn't have one contradiction. There's only one explanation for that. That God is the author of the scripture. It's not just mankind's creation. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, that all scripture is God-breathed out and is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. the man of God may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. But let's go a little bit deeper into the deep end of the pool. So we see the broad overall theme of the Bible, that God's pursuit of mankind's redemption because of our sin. We see the foundation of the New Testament. We see the meaning of Testament itself, a covenant or dispensation. We see the overall layout of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the things written right in the middle. But allow me to just uh, tickle your American itch a little bit. Because we love chronological stories in America. We are slaves to the clock. The, the clock is our master. If you do not believe me, then go look at your calendar for next week. It's probably nauseating. 
So allow me to put the Old Testament in chronological time frame. Okay, I'm just going to tickle that itch for just a second. You have Abraham in 2000 B.C., you have Moses in 1500 B.C., you have David in 1000 B.C., and you have Nehemiah in 500 B.C. Let me say that again. You have Abraham in 2000 B.C., you have Moses in 1500 B.C., you have David in 1000, and then you have Nehemiah in 500 B.C. So the Old Testament contains over 1500 years of history. So think about it. When you go into 1st and 2nd Samuel, there's already been a thousand years of Israel's history. Think about a thousand years ago. We kind of disconnect from that number. That's a thousand AD. You know how much the world has changed in a thousand years? It's crazy. So think about the time span between Abraham and David is a thousand years, and then David and the son of God's arrival is another thousand years. Kind of give you an idea on the span of the Old Testament itself. Let's go a little bit deeper. If you have read the Old Testament, then you know that there are some kind of strange stories in there. Um, We like to represent it as something that is told to our children beside their bed. And there are some great stories for that occasion. And then there are some not-so-good stories for that occasion. Daddy, what's happening in there? Okay, Uh, there are some crazy stories in the Bible. And you should read it because all of it is God's Word. There are thousands, perhaps, events of the Old Testament And I had the dubious task, or the audacious task, or however you want to say it, of boiling down thousands of events of the Old Testament and boiling them down to ten. And if you're wondering where the notes are this morning to help you keep track, I plan to give them to you next week. I just want you to kind of track along and be completely lost today. You have ten major events in the Old Testament. You have creation, you have the fall of man, you have the flood, you have Abraham's number, event number four. You have Moses, the conquest of the land. You have the coronation of the kings. And you have the divided kingdom, the deportation of Judah to Babylon, and the return from deportation from Babylon. Let me say all this again. Okay. Event number one is you have creation. Genesis chapter one and two. You, then you have the fall of man. And then you have the flood. And then you have Abraham. Genesis chapter 11 and 12 and on. Event number five, you have Moses in the Exodus. Six, you have the conquest or return into the land of Canaan. You have number seven is the coronation of the kings of Israel. Number eight, you have the divided kingdom under Rehoboam and Jeroboam. You have the deportation of the southern two tribes of Judah to Babylon. And then you have the return of Israel from Babylon. And with what little time I have left, we will cover the next four. The first four, excuse me. So the very first book in the Bible contains the first four events of my mentioning the first ten. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to go to the book of Genesis. That is where we will visit the first four events that I have mentioned under the ten in totality. The uh, Interesting enough, the book of Genesis is not called the book of Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. The actual book of Genesis... Is the, comes from the Hebrew word Bereshit, which means in the beginning. If you notice that word, that sounds probably familiar to some of us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the Hebrew name of Genesis is Bereshit. It actually comes from the very first word in the Hebrew Bible, which means in the beginning. And that phrase, in the beginning, gives you an idea of what the book of Genesis contains. It, be, it is a book of Beginnings. It describes the beginnings of everything except for one thing, God himself. If you have your Bible, notice Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is the assumption there that God was already in existence? If God was created, then he would not be God. He would not be the supreme being. But in the beginning of creation, God already existed before time itself. The book of Genesis has five beginnings. It has the beginning of creation, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of mankind's rebirth from the flood, and then you have the beginning of a nation. The first beginning is found in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning of creation. I do not have all of the time in the world to describe to you what really happens in Genesis chapter 1. But for the sake of our clarity, notice, skip down to verse 26, and this is the creation of mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Can I 
We are the only creature that is created by God in his image. Can I say it this way? Um, Do not let the culture convince us that we're just a monkey. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Notice that. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is a summation of the creation of man. Genesis chapter 2 kind of gives a more intimate detail of how man and woman specifically were created. But then you have the completion of creation in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 and 3. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the creation of all things except for one thing, which is God himself. And then Genesis chapter 2 is the creation of mankind and its summation of it in full. But then we have, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the beginning of sin. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's a bit of a long section, but I'm reading it very strategically to help us understand how sin or... Sin was introduced into the world. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Notice that phrase. I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was, del- it was a delight to the eyes and the tree. But isn't that all sin? It's a delight to the eyes at the time. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. What should she expect at that exact moment? The moment she touches the fruit, she should expect to die, to drop dead right then and there. Because that's what God said. And she gave also to her husband with her. Wait a second. Where's Adam? Ezra Connecto. He is elbow to elbow. He is right there watching his wife eat. And he's probably expecting her to drop dead at that exact moment. He is passive. He should have stopped her. She took from its fruit and ate and also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. God created us in perfection to have a relationship with God that was intimate and to serve and to work. One of the things that we have a misconception of the Garden of Eden, by the way, I could spend a year just on chapters 1, 2, and 3 because there's just so much there. But we have this misconception that work came after the fall. That's not true. We were supposed to work in the Garden of Eden itself. But the difference is is that now work is stressful. Can I get an amen to those who work in the room? Work is stressful. Okay, amen. All right, it is. Every work, every job that is in the world right now is stressful because of the introduction of sin. But I want to talk about something. What's the first sin that, that mankind did? It is not eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not even the first sin of Adam being passive and watching his wife named Eve grab the fruit. And he says, okay, okay, I'll just, I'll just watch you see if you die, okay? That's basically, oh, maybe God will give me another one. It's probably what he's thinking, okay? He's, he, but really the first sin is what Satan says in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Wanting to be like God, wanting to be God himself, is the first sin of mankind. That was the true temptation. And listen, friends, think about the nature of sin itself. 
The reason we sin and the reason we make mistakes is because we want control over our own lives. We want to be like God. Is that true? Think about it. Anytime you are tempted to covet, anytime you're tempted to steal, anytime you're to think you're tempted to have an inappropriate thought, what happens in the exact moment that you transfer from temptation to sin? You are setting aside the law and morality of God because you want to do something. You want to be like God. That is the foundation. That is the original sin that we want control over our lives, over doing what we want. We do not want to answer to God. That is the nature of fallen mankind. We want control. I don't care what God says. I want to covet. I want to steal. I, I, I want to disobey my parents. That is the foundation of all sin. And let me just say something. That is seen in our culture today. This sinful desire to be our own God is seen in one of the strangest things in our culture today of the, uh, I'm just going to say it, the gender identity crisis. That we don't want to submit to the way that God has made me. I want to be in control over my own life, therefore I can call myself whoever I want. That is madness. And that is disobeying the Lord. That is an abomination because that is sin. The, the idea of sin is that we want control over our lives and is seen in that identity. That I don't want to submit to the way that God has made me. I'm just going to say who I want. I'm going to change pronouns. What? That is the basis of all sin. It's the desire for control. But I want you to notice, man, this is where I could spend uh, eons in the text with you. Because we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see a host of consequences to our sin. I picked out like eight. But I would imagine if you really worked at it, you could probably pick about 25,000 consequences to sin in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The consequence number one of the sin of them wanting to be like God and then eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The consequence number one that we see is found in verse, I'll back up to verse five. I'll back up to verse six to give us context. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Verse 7, this is the first consequence to sin. It should have been death, but by the grace of God, they did not die a physical death at this moment. But then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made them loin coverings. What's the very first consequence of sin? What is it? It is shame. Because they're sitting in the Garden of Eden, and sitting in perfection without the tarnishment of of wrong, and the very first thing that they open their eyes, they notice their own shame to sin. Let me just ask you the question: You do not have to answer this if you do not want. Uh, how many of you have ever experienced shame from sin? Every single one of us. That is the first consequence of their sin: is they experience shame. Consequence number two is a strained relationship with God. If you notice in verse 8, notice, uh, I love this, man, I I spent like 25,000 years on this one verse right here. They heard the sound of the Lord. What does that tell you? They heard, that means they've heard it before. That means they've been walking with God for a period of time. That means they had a relationship with the Lord even in perfection. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And in verse 9, then the Lord God called to the man. Notice that, not to both of them, but to the man who was responsible for this act. He said to him, where are you? 
So, a consequence number two is a strained relationship with God. The relationship with God, we, have been, we were originally designed to work for God and have a relationship with Him, but now things have changed. Even, and they knew it. They knew the voice, of, they knew the sound of the Lord, and they hid themselves because of the shame that came with their sin. Consequence number three is found in verse 12, are strained marriages. The consequence of sin is strained marriages. Some of you are probably wondering why your marriage is strained for years. It's not because of somebody else's fault, it's because of sin, and the sin that each of us have, that each of us bring into the marriage itself. Consequence number four is a strained relationship between us and nature, verse 15 of chapter 3. Consequence number five is a swell of pain in childbirth, verse 15. Consequence number six is a struggle between man and woman over control of their marriage. That is a consequence of sin. Where do I get that from? Verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. Notice it with me. You you don't really normally pick it up from the text in English, but in the Hebrew it's much more clear. Verse 16. To the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, consequence of sin, and pain you will bring forth children, Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That word desire there, really when you look at its usage in Genesis chapter 4, God is talking to Cain and he says, uh, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to control you. The reason there's conflict in your marriage is not just because of sin, but because there is a struggle over control. That woman wants the desire for her husband. That word desire is the desire of control over. And then can we speak? Sorry if I'm stepping on your toes, men. I'm not really sorry, actually. Um, men have two natural tendencies when it comes to marriage. They either are authoritarian or they are passive. And both of them find themselves right here in verse 15. Her desire is to control. And those, the end of verse 15, excuse me, verse 16, and he will rule over you. In our fallen, sinful human being, God created us in marriage as one flesh between man and woman. The reason there is marital strife is because of sin, but it's also because of the control over authority in the marriage itself. Consequence number seven is distress at work. Verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3 Consequence number nine, of course, is spiritual and physical death. The reason we die physically is because of sin. Jesus says in the Garden of Eden that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The mere existence of breath in our lungs is evidence of the mercy and grace of God. But we also experience eternal separation, spiritual death without, because of sin. What does it say in Romans chapter 6 verse 23? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of sin. But it's also the beginning of redemption. Look at verse 15. This is the most beautiful, most awesome verse in the entire Bible. And I mean that. And I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he... Notice that he... Wait. And between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the most awesome verse in the entire Bible. It is... in scholarly circles, it's called the Proto-Euanglium. It is the first pronouncement of the Messiah to come. That from the seed of the woman will come one that will bruise his heel on the head of the serpent. Who is ser- the serpent? It is Satan. That there will become one from the seed of the woman that will bruise, that will conquer the sin and conquer the grave. And we know that person prophesied all the way to the Garden of Eden. We know that person to be Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And it, notice it says from her seed. So what is the significance of that? That there must be a man that comes. He must be born as a descendant of the woman, which we know Jesus Christ was. 
But also, God must himself pay for the sins of the world. Why? Because God is the only one sufficient to pay for the sins of the world because he is the only one that is the blemishless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. So think about the prophecy that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We know that it must be a man, but we also know it must be God. Hence the God-man. Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a babe on Christmas morning and died on the cross. This is the very first mention of the redemption that we have in God to come. We have the beginning of creation, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption. But then notice, I want you to notice, I'm going to run out of time here soon. But I might just go a couple minutes long, so you'll have to forgive me in your lunch plans today. But I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made garments of skin. I want you to notice that. So you have the pronouncement of the God-man that is to come, that will pay for the sins of the world, that will come from the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, however you want to say it. And then notice verse 21, And the Lord God made garments of skin. Wait a second, they were already clothed with fig leaves. Why does God make a garment of skin? This is the first atonement we have from an animal, foreshadowing what? The sacrifice of the Lamb of God to come. This is the atonement, first atonement of sin in the Bible. He made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. We have creation, the fall of man. And then event number three, a little bit further into the deep end of the Old Testament, we have the event of the flood. If you remember that story, God is uh, sick and tired of mankind and us relishing in our sin, and I believe it says something like in Genesis chapter 6 in Byron's own translation that God was sick and regretted making mankind, and he looked upon the earth at the time of the flood, and he could not find one righteous except for one named Noah. And then God decides to wipe out every human being on the face of the earth, and through the one man who was righteous before him, who had faith in God, he decides to save Noah and his family. Then Noah gets on the ark, and God destroys the world by flood. And in the flood itself, we have a very tame view of sin in evangelical circles. We like to kind of excuse it or they say that God loves you, that God doesn't really care about your sin, and that God is not a God of justice. That is baloney. He hates sin, and the cross is evidence that he hates sin. Because if he didn't hate sin, why would he die? His hatred of sin is also seen in the flood itself because he kills mankind because of their wickedness and their wretchedness. So we have the beginning of creation, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of mankind's rebirth in the flood, and then we have the beginning of a nation. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 11. We, um, God through one man, establishes a nation to be a light to the world. But we often think that the story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12, but it actually begins in Genesis chapter 11. So Abraham is introduced in Genesis chapter 11. He is promised to be a great nation in Genesis chapter 12. And then the covenant or the seal of the nation is found in Genesis chapter 15. But there's a problem. There's two problems, actually. That God, okay, God tells Abraham, okay, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, that your descendants will be like as the stars of the sky. And as the sand of the sea, so to speak. But there's a problem. There's two problems. In fact, Abraham is old, right? If you remember that story, and he has no son. So Abraham, I think he's like a hundred, and he says, wait a second, time out, okay, wait a second. So you have, you're promising me that I'm going to be a great nation, but I have no children. That's a problem. But God says, be patient, I will give you a son through your wife Sarah. But what does Abraham decide to do instead? He decides to be impatient, like we all are when we have to wait on God. He finds his maidservant named Hagar, and he has a son through Hagar named Ishmael. But then sometime later, God does fulfill his promise to Abraham and gives him the promised son named Isaac. So you have a son named Ishmael. I want you to catch this for a strategic reason. You have a son named Ishmael that is older than Isaac, and then Isaac, the promised son, comes later on. Let me do that one decision of Abraham, the consequence of that sin, we still feel today. 
Abraham's decision to have a child through his servant and usurp the promise of God, we still feel the consequence today. What am I saying here? You may or may not know this, but the nation of Islam, the religion of Islam, traces its lineage through Ishmael to Abraham. Christianity and Judaism trace their lineage through Isaac. The jealousy that Ishmael had toward Isaac some 4,000 years ago, we still feel the same jealousy and consternation even today. That the conflict we see in the Middle East was from one man that decided to disobey the will of God. But very quickly, Abraham had a son named Ishmael through Hagar. Abraham then had a promised son through Isaac. Then Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau, if you remember that story. But Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from Esau because he was a man of trickery, so to speak. And then Jacob's name was then turned into Israel, which is where we get the nation of Israel. Jacob then had 12 sons, which basically, we could talk about the logistics of this more later, but basically became the 12 tribes of Israel. But then what do you know happened after that? That Jacob favored one of his sons over the rest of them. Because Joseph was born of his favorite wife named Rachel, so then his other sons became jealous of Joseph, and what do they decide to do? They then sell Joseph to be slave, to be a slave in the nation of Egypt. He goes away, they lie to Jacob saying that Joseph was destroyed by a beast in the fields. But then God's providence happened to where then God causes a famine on the land of Israel, the forcing the twelve sons and their children to the nation of Egypt. And what do they find there? They find that Joseph, this, the brother that they sold into slavery, is now second in command over the most powerful nation in the world. But instead of Joseph uh, hanging all of his brothers for their treachery, what does he do instead? He gives them the land of Goshen. And they stay there for 400 years and they populate and then they become there in Goshen, in the modern-day Egypt. They become the nation of Israel. And then, after 400 years being in Egypt, a king forgot about Joseph and then enslaved the Hebrews as slaves in his kingdom. And that is where we prime the pump for the Exodus, which we will see next week. Let me read Exodus chapter 1 to kind of summarize where we will land next week. It says, and now a new king, this is Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, and now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the peoples of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Ramses and Pithom. So that is where we pick up. So that is the story of the Old Testament. And if you are confused, I'm sorry, I will give you notes next week and I will revisit some of these details. But the Old Testament, part one, is the story of the beginnings. The beginning of creation, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of mankind's rebirth, and the beginning of a nation. The question I have is, you know, this is a, this is a sermon, so it's not just meant to just be a seminary uh, lecture, so to speak, information transfer, but I really want to drive home a point. But how do you find one point from 50 chapters of the Bible? That's the question, right? So this week I just pause in my study. I say, okay, Lord, you know, what, what do you want me to communicate to my people? What do you want them to walk away with from the story of beginnings? And the thought, the thought that I had, and I feel like the Lord gave it to me, is really the theme of the whole entire book of the Bible. That despite our sin, God is pursuing a relationship with us. That despite your sin, God is pursuing a relationship with you. And God sees all of your past, present, and future sins, and he sent his son to die in your stead, and that God wants a relationship with you. Let me just say something real quick. This is a story. I was 18 years old. I was sitting up in the youth group here at Calvary Bible Church in the depot, and I remember hearing a youth pastor say that I was designed to have a relationship with God. I never heard that before. At least I never thought I did. I probably did. But that... One message changed my life forever. 
that you as a Christian aren't just meant to be institutionalized. You're not just meant to sit down in a pew and, and appear on the outside that you have everything together because I know you don't because there is sin in the world, but that you are meant to have a walk and a relationship with the Lord. Despite your sin, you are meant to walk with God. But I want you to think about the idea of relationships, specifically your human relationships. We all have relationships in our lives that keep the people keep wronging us and keep sinning us. And what, what do we eventually do with those people that keep doing us wrong? We eventually forgive them 70 times 7. We shut them out. If you have an employee that is stealing from you, what do you eventually do? You fire them, and rightfully so, okay? If you have a child that's 50 years old that, that comes back to live with you every six months, you eventually change your locks, okay? You, okay, that's just what you do, but that is imperfect love. What I find amazing about the scripture is that the pronouncement of sin and the desecration of the perfection of mankind at that exact moment, God pronounces redemption. That despite your sin, God still is pursuing you. God still desires for you to know him and walk with him. The question is, will you let sin, will you let mistakes deter you from walking the path of knowing and loving your Savior? Real quick, if you do not know, um, if you do not have a personal relationship with God, if this is foreign, if I overwhelmed you today, I apologize. Um, if this idea of the gospel of redemption of Jesus Christ is kind of foreign to you, then let me just say it this way, that you and I are sinners that we see. And the reason we know that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, is because one day we will die. That's why you know it. That's why you know that you right here are a sinner. If you're convinced that you're good enough, or that you're a good person, and that you earn your way to heaven, if you're convinced of that, well, you're going to die. So therefore, you're not, Okay? But that's why we need Jesus. Jesus Christ came and he died for our sins. That we, if we believe in him, that we would be redeemed, restored, and changed from the inside out. And we would be granted life, eternal, and a transformed life here. If you've never believed and trusted him as your savior, believe. Today we will have a couple of prayer partners here forward. So if you would like to see somebody after, during the last song or after the service, you're welcome to. They will be available for you. Um, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Um, the story of the Bible is one of you. That, that we are not um, the heroes of the story. We are the heels, so to speak. We are the ones that messed it all up. We chose to sin. We chose to rebel. And we choose every day today to rebel and to sin against our Lord and Savior. And Lord, what a magnificent truth that even since the beginning of time itself, that you were working out the events of human history to bring about your Son in the form of flesh to pay for our sin from the seed of the woman. Um, Lord, I, um, I pray for those today. Lord, I know that there are, there are probably people here today that think they're a Christian, that have heard the gospel perhaps, or maybe been told by a preacher that they are saved. But Lord, I just pray that they would look in the mirror today and they would really question their salvation. The scripture says to test ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would test our faith, and if we did not know you as Savior, that we would believe in you. Thank you for today, and thank you for this church. And I lift this up to you in your son's name. Amen.